You're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast, the official channel for faith and life topics at PursueGod.org. Join us every week as we explore new topics from a biblical perspective. Today, Pastor Eric, we're finishing up Mark chapter 9. This is our third week. It's taken us three weeks to get through this this 50-verse chapter in the Bible. And, And today we're going to talk about the key to greatness, but before we get there, it's probably good to kind of back up and, and look at where we've been. So in in the first section of chapter nine, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain to be alone, and he transfigures himself. He reveals himself. He reveals his glory to Peter, James, and John. He's trying to show them who he really is. More on that in a second. And then last week, we looked at you know, that they come down off the mountain. The other nine disciples couldn't heal this demon-possessed boy. They're trying to figure out why they couldn't do it. Jesus said it only this kind come only comes up by by prayer. Jesus ends up healing the demon-possessed boy. Again, still revealing his his nature to the people, to not just to the crowd, but also to the disciples. And one of the things I think that naturally all of this leads to. And we're going to see this here today. It's going to lead to probably some insecurity on the part of the disciples. Because think about it, the the, the three went up to the mountain with him. The, the other nine stayed down. They couldn't heal somebody. And we're going to see that that's going to lead to some interesting conversations among the disciples. We'll get all to all of that in today's verses. We're going to be covering a lot of ground here today. Chapter, chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. So, For our listeners out there, you might want to kind of read ahead, prepare yourself for where we're going in today's conversation. But before we get to any of it, Eric, maybe we should start with this question, because the theme for today is is all about the key to greatness. So what, what do you think, Eric, today's listeners, today's culture would say is the key to greatness? What what do people believe today to be the key to greatness? I think, yeah, people look at who's famous out there in the world and think that those people have really made it. Those are great people that they want to be like, you know, if you think about social media, you know, the influencers on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok, and it's the guys that or gals that have the most followers, um, or that have, you know, in the fitness world have, have the perfect physique in the sports world. It's, those who've had the the biggest championship wins and the greatest contracts. I mean, these are people who our world say is great. And, and they certainly, people have given up a lot of things. They've sacrificed so much to get to where they're at. And I mean, that's kind of like what our culture values is, is um, people who are, who are driven and passionate, um, and have made a name for themselves. Yeah. So I, I mean, really we could, we could start the debate. We probably don't have time, but you know, who's the goat, the Mm. greatest of all time. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you talk about that in basketball, you know, it's either people are either going to say it's Michael Jordan or it's LeBron James. We'll leave it to small groups to debate (laughs) that for themselves. Or if you think about it in terms of the golf world, you would say, well, it's either, Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods. I mean, those are the really the only two options. And in the football world, I guess I don't know. I I mean, most people would say it's Tom Tom Brady in terms of quarterbacks. Um, 
but you know, maybe maybe some of our older listeners would say, well, what, what about Walter Payton or Jim Brown or you know some of these running backs? I don't know. But so 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 the question of who's the goat is really the question we're going to be addressing today because two thousand years ago. Jesus and his disciples had a conversation about it, and they weren't talking about basketball or football or golf. They were talking about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. How does God measure greatness in the kingdom of heaven? We're not going to answer that yet. We're going to get to the text. We're going to work our way toward the answer. We're going to try to hold off a little bit to see where Jesus is going to go with his disciples. So let's get to the text, Mark chapter 9. Starting in verse 30, it says, leaving that region. So this was after they healed the demon-possessed boy. It says they traveled through Galilee. And Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. And we see that, Eric, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. He's just, moment by moment, he's trying to reveal the truth to them, and the most important thing he's trying to reveal to them is what his mission is all about. And so he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He'll be killed, but three days later he'll rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. So we've been here before, right, Eric? This isn't the first time Jesus brings us up, but they still aren't quite getting it. I would call this maybe the second prediction of Jesus's death and resurrection. And yeah, back in chapter eight was the first time in the book of Mark that Jesus reveals that he's going to have to suffer and die. In fact, in chapter eight is where um, the book took a turn from Jesus being the, the prophesied Messiah, the Savior, the healer, um, the miracle worker, to now it's kind of taking this shift that he's actually going to have to be this suffering savior. Um, and so Jesus is, um, from this point on, has set his face towards Jerusalem and, and what's to come. And so it's getting to this point with his disciples that they really need to start getting this because he's not going to be with them uh, much longer, and they're going to have to carry on this this whole ministry and mission of Jesus. And so that's really what he's getting them prepared for. And he uses this opportunity to teach them some important things about how to be great in the kingdom, uh, what it looks like to be a disciple, a, a follower of Jesus, and a Christian. And that leads them to start questioning. It's funny, every time, you know, Jesus says something, we look at the disciples and it's almost as if you can tell that they weren't listening or very carefully, or they didn't necessarily get it. It's kind of, sometimes I feel that way, you know, after I get done preaching at church, sometimes, you know, uh, if you're a pastor listening to this right now, maybe you feel that way, or you're a small group leader or something, and you were trying to get some points across um, and then you start the discussion and people like take it all these different directions and kind of got to bring it back in. You know, that's what Jesus is doing as he's leading these disciples. 
Well, and it's not just preaching the word, it's even doing announcements, right? I mean, isn't this true in churches all around the country? <laughs> How many times has this happened where somebody says, I didn't know I didn't know that there was a church picnic today. And you're like, we announced it for three weeks <laughs> in a row. Are you not listening? Are you not paying attention? Yeah. Now, now what Jesus is talking about is a little more important than a church mm-hmm. picnic. He's he's talking about who he is, the son of man, what his mission's gonna be, what's gonna happen to him. He's gonna be killed, he's gonna be betrayed, and he's gonna but he's gonna rise from the dead. And it's I don't know, maybe encouraging is the word. It's encouraging that the disciples didn't understand. And yet Jesus hung hung in there with his disciples because some of our listeners might be saying, I'm still trying to figure out who Jesus is. I don't, it's kind of like the father in last week's lesson. The father says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. So I'm, you know, the father admitted that he was on a journey and he didn't have it all completely figured out. And it, isn't it good news that that Jesus is patient and he's gracious with us as we're trying to figure out who he is and what that means for our lives. And and here we are again in today's lesson learning some of these same things. But but Jesus it's you know verse 30, 30 says that Jesus his whole goal here was to teach them. So he he's hanging in there. Everything we're about to read, Jesus is intentionally trying to teach his disciples. He's not trying to do ministry right here to the crowds. He's not going to heal anybody in today's message. He's just trying to teach the disciples about who he is and what he's all about and what that means for them and their followership. You know, that we're following this kind of Messiah. We're following, we're following someone who instead of, instead of being, you know, uh, like installed on the throne of a physical kingdom in the time of the disciples 2000 years ago, Jesus is saying, no, that's not how this is all going to end. It's going to end with me being killed and then three days later arising. And so they still don't get it, though. They didn't understand what he's saying. They're slow to learn. And then the next section of scripture is really funny. It's actually comical because that's this is where they get into a debate. And we're going to call it the great debate because it's a debate about greatness. It says, after they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house... Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? Apparently, Jesus said all this stuff, and then they're having a little conversation, and they think that he can't hear them, but he knows they're having a conversation. But they didn't want to admit what the conversation was about, probably because they were a little bit embarrassed about the topic, because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. So Eric, think about this. Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, that's what I'm here to do. And they're over there having a debate about which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of comical when you think about it. So he sits down with them. He, he calls the 12 disciples over to himself and he says, listen, guys, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. So this is what he wants to teach them Eric, help us to understand what's going on in these passages. Well, I think even our culture can understand the language where he says, if you want to be first, uh, you must take last place. Now, when we think about greatness, we think about winners. We think about the, the people who are up on the podium. And sometimes there's first, second, and third, right? With the different medals, like in the in the Olympics and stuff. And and he's using this analogy because they've had they've had 
you know, sports, you know, for thousands of years too. And I think Jesus is, is using this as an example. You look out into the world and you think of great people and it's the people who win and take first place. But I'm telling you, if you want to be great, you need to be last. Now that, that, you know, saying that to already confused disciples, I'm sure they're like, what, what does he mean by that? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, when, when it reminds me of a schoolyard pick and the person who's picked last is usually kind of the least important, the least gifted, the least talented, uh, the least popular. And, and, you know, that's a hurtful thing to be in that position. That's a, a humiliating position to be in is to be last. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to to get at is is what they're struggling with is this this worldly view of greatness, which really um, is is pride. It's the pride of life. It's the pride of man. And and what I believe Jesus is wanting to do is show them it's really it's really humility, which is the word um, from which humiliation comes from. Which, by the way, you know, we should think about Jesus and his example. Although he was great, he's come to be a servant. Uh, it's it's those who are humble, and I believe that's what you know. Ultimately, Jesus is going to get at in these in these next few verses and passages as we look on today. That he really is calling calling these guys to get out of their pride and to seek humility. Yeah, here's how I think this conversation got there. I mean, if you look at the previous verses, so he just told them that I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. So they, it's like they ignored the first two things, mm-hmm. which are all about humiliation. We know that going to the cross, hanging on the cross, basically naked on the cross, going through that pain and suffering and humiliation. I mean, crucifixion was supposed to be humiliating. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just supposed to kill the person. It was supposed to shame the person to keep other people from doing whatever he did to get there in the first place. Now, he's not talking about the cross yet, by the way. They don't understand that it's going to be a cross. He, he did say you have to take up your cross, but he never said he was going to go to the cross yet. He just said he's going to be killed. And so, th- but they ignore the first two things that I'm going to be betrayed and killed. And I think what they're probably keying in on is this last thing is, wait, he's going to rise from the dead. Okay, so, so who's going to be the greatest then? Who gets, who gets to sit at his right hand? We know that James and John had that debate in another gospel. Who gets to sit at your right hand? And who gets to sit at your left hand? That's probably the conversation that they're having right here. So think about it. They completely missed the, f- the first two-thirds of what he was saying. They're just hanging on to, they're keying in on the last thing that he said. And, and he's, he's trying to get them to back up and say, you're not listening to me. You're not listening. I, don't, I think you're cherry picking what you want to be true. And don't we do that too today as Christians, Eric? I think, you know, the prosperity gospel is so popular out there these days, and it's not surprising. I mean, what, what would you rather listen to? Somebody saying you're a sinner, you're broken, you're scum, and you need to turn to Jesus? Or would you rather hear somebody saying, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy? Well, you're going to, you know, human nature is going to say, that's what I want. I want the good stuff. 
So we tend to key in on the good stuff. And there's plenty of good stuff in the Bible, by the way. There's plenty of good news in the Bible. But but the good the to understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news. And the disciples were missing the bad news. And they were, it's you could almost argue that this is like the first edition of prosperity gospel in the Bible, is the disciples themselves were trying to focus in on and 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 really distort a teaching in God's word that that Jesus is going to rise from the dead, and we are going to rise from the dead, and we are going to conquer sin and death and the grave, but they're making it the focus, and and they're trying to get it to focus on them. They're not thinking about Jesus. They're shifting, and they're thinking about, what does this mean for me? What do I get out of this? What's in it for me? Yeah, and if you think about this, these are gonna these guys are gonna be the the leaders of the church, um, which is gonna bring about the kingdom of God on earth. And so, I think for us in the in the Christian world, it also gives us a, a great um, a great structure, a great mindset to have as as people who want to serve. And and certainly every Christian needs to be a, a, a part of the church. And there is a structure. There is sometimes a hierarchy. There's leadership. There are, there are people with uh, leadership giftings that have to um, propel and and share the vision on, on where to go and everything. But I think that this is a, a challenge to uh, leaders in the church and and people who are, have leadership positions in the church that really, uh, if we want to be like Christ, we ought to be servants. In fact, if we were to pull and steal some verses from Mark chapter ten, which we'll preach on in a, in a few weeks, but but Jesus says this in uh, Mark ten verse forty two. It says, and Jesus called them to him and said to them. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so really, this is something... Mark has really revealed to us, we've talked about it uh, even from the beginning, that there's kind of an upside-down model to the kingdom of God. Um, what we think should be this, you know, maybe this secular CEO model in the church is really, no, the greatest ought to be willing to give up their life like Christ did. And he's the, he's the greatest example. He came... Um, not really demanding anything. Again, we see his patience even with the disciples. I mean, if you think about someone who's supposed to be a great king, whom they thought that he was a king, and he is a king, but he's a different kind of a king. He doesn't rule it over them um, with with uh, discipline and authority, so to speak. He 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 leads them in patience and kindness and gentleness and and humility. And, you know, really Jesus is the greatest example here. And, and I believe he's, he's really, again, propping up himself in these verses, who is really the greatest in the kingdom? It's Jesus. And so if we want to be great, we should look to him and become like him. And so that there's the answer to the question we started with, what is the key to greatness 
from Jesus's perspective, the answer is humility. Humility is the key to greatness. That's why he said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. And then he, he used a prop to help them understand. Jesus did this a lot of times. A lot of times he told stories, parables to really bring it to life. In this instance, he actually grabs a child. He puts a little child among them. And he, he took this child in his arms and he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. And I want to read something from the Pillar New Testament commentary that helps us to understand this. It says that we're mistaken if we imagine that Greek and Jewish society extolled the virtues of childhood, as do modern societies in general. So it's easy to read this through the lens of modern day Christianity or even just modern America. But we have to remember that societies with high infant mortality rates and great demand for human labor cannot afford to be sentimental about infants and youth. So in Judaism, children and women were largely auxiliary members of society whose connection to the social mainstream depended on men. And so children in particular were thought of as not having arrived. So actually, children, like when Jesus is taking a child, he's using this child as an illustration of the very last, like the the people that the disciples were supposed to be servants of. Remember, he just said, if you want to be first, you have to take last place and be the servant of everyone else. And this is what he's saying. You have to be a servant of this child. Instead of this child being dependent on you, you need to be a servant of this child. You need to look after the least of these. He's, he's talking about humility. Now, there are other places in scripture where Jesus says you have to come to God like a child, but that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here with with taking this child in his arms, he's saying something a little different. They're related, but it's a little different. He's saying, no, you need to receive a child. You need to look at the, the lowest in society. You need to look at the lowest in society, and you need to be willing to serve them. And Eric, that was such a radical statement in a male-dominated culture 2,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree. I th- I believe that the proper interpretation of this is that he's he's looking at children as s- society would say these are the ones that um haven't haven't made it to the the level of of greatness like uh the grown male leaders. In fact, um in the Old Testament I can think of a a couple of places where there's a judgment that God himself he speaks through the prophets and says you will be ruled over by by children and and that's a bad thing, you know, uh to be ruled over by children. And so um I think that yeah, Jesus is using this child as an example that you need to look out for even the most insignificant people. In fact, that's how Jesus came to the earth when he came to seek and save the lost. He came for the sinners, the outcasts, the the ones whom the religious leaders didn't think were at their level of importance. And so again, this is a humbling statement that he is um, trying to 
teach. He's trying to use this prop of the child as a, as a teaching moment to these guys because he's trying to help them remember, hey, guys, you guys were really nobody when I called you. <laughs> you, you were fishermen. You were, you were low in society. So let's not forget, I know you, you're the chosen, and that does make you important. And I think all of us should remember just the fact that we've been chosen by God and we get it and we're followers of Christ. Like That should give us some self-worth for sure. God thought we were worth worth it to come and die for us and to reveal it to us. But on another level, Jesus then wants to remind his disciples, you were not, you know, like Paul says later, you were not of noble birth. You you weren't wise. You um, weren't necessarily anything important in society. And so remember where you came from. <laughs> and I think it's a great example thinking about a child like you guys are like this guy, remember, make yourself, uh, make this kid more important than yourself. Again, that's another mm. uh, value or uh, a way to interpret humility is being teachable or putting others um, in in higher rank than you, making others more important than you are. Yeah, and I think it's worth ad- admitting here. Maybe we can encourage our listeners to take stock of their own mental life and say, don't you sometimes walk into a room, maybe a small group, maybe church, maybe some of our younger listeners in in school, and don't you kind of compare yourself a little bit to other people? You just play this little game, like, am I better than that mm-hmm. guy? Am I smarter than that guy? Am I, you know, maybe in the church world, am I holier than that guy? <laughs> like, we all play the comparison game a little bit. I think social media has made it even worse for everybody. We're all playing the social, we're all playing the comparison game. And... <laughs> Jesus is is saying he's he's putting the child in front of them saying you need to consider this kid more important than you. It's compl- it goes completely against human nature not just in the society of 2000 years ago but even today. Even today it completely goes against human nature. He's trying to get his disciples to understand that. He's trying to get them to understand that the key to greatness is humility. He's trying to help them like you said Eric He's trying to help them to understand this is why he chose them, that they're, that they're the example for everyone to follow. He didn't choose the wisest, the smartest. He chose losers like mm. them. Anyone listening to this today who's a follower of Jesus, we're talking to you. He chose you. You're not that special. You're not a snowflake. You, like It's all about him. It's not about you. This is what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus is trying to say, humble yourselves, guys. Um, this is what greatness in the kingdom is all about. So he's saying all of this stuff, and then it's hilarious what happens next. Verse 38. John, so so this, this kid is still standing there in Jesus' arms. He literally is just saying this stuff, trying to teach this stuff. And then John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Now think about how funny this must be, or maybe frustrating for Jesus. Literally, they're not even paying attention to what he's saying. He's saying, you're not that special. He's saying, you're not that important. He's saying, don't don't think of yourself in a whole different league. That's maybe a good way to say it. Don't think of yourself in a whole different league compared to this child. And now they're saying, look, this unknown exorcist, this independent guy, we don't even have a name for him. This guy's a no-name. Literally, he's a no-name. He's a no-name. He wasn't in our league. 
and yet he's casting out demons in your name. It's almost comical how the disciples aren't even paying attention and they're still not getting what Jesus is trying to teach them. And Eric, maybe help us to understand why the disciples would would even, it almost feels like a diversion tactic. Like John is uncomfortable and he's like, let me, let me try to change the subject here. But he he's actually proving that he's not paying any attention. Yeah, there might be some jealousy here because if you think about, he wasn't in our group, but but he was he was casting out demons. Um, if we think about what had happened the week prior to this, you know, last week's lesson, the the disciples, the nine, couldn't cast the demon out uh, for that the father, the the boy of the father. And and then here they are. They see this unknown guy who's not part of the chosen, um, doing something that they couldn't do. And so here comes jealousy, maybe envy. And you know, jealousy and envy are a part of uh, pride again, um, and trying to elevate themselves to a higher status or level of importance. And so they're they're putting a lot of stock that they're in this chosen group. But in order for them to come to a level of maturity, um, God's got to do some humility, some work in them. And I think, you know, that's definitely something that's happened in my own life. Um, Before God could use me, there had to be some humbling. And in fact, that's going to keep happening until until I die. Uh, God is constantly humbling um, His people, um, revealing the truth about who we really are. Um, and so with these guys, the disciples there, in a sense, they don't like that somebody has power. They're talking about Jesus, but ha- haven't been approved by their little group. And I think in, in Christianity, uh, we do that, right? Don't we? We do that with different denominations and different groups and people that have different levels of understanding or different interpretations of Scripture um, sometimes we create these little factions and, and we think we're greater than, uh, but I, I really think that, um, as we, as we read on in the text, you know, how Jesus handles it, it really proves that, um, it's, it's not something that we should concern ourselves with to go running around and stop people. Because here's what Jesus says. He says, don't stop him. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth that that person will surely be rewarded. Jesus, again, is preparing them for this is going to explode all over the world. You know, in in a matter of years, these guys are going to turn the world upside down, and they need to not bother themselves or concern themselves with with every little offshoot or, or spinoff of what, what God's doing in the world. I mean, Jesus has had thousands of people by this time listen to his teachings, and, and so it's, it's going to eventually be out of their control. And I think then that, again, reveals uh, people um, in their pride, they kind of want to control everything as if their way is the best way. And so... We see, you know, this this teaching really is expanding. It's really a great um, in-depth teaching on how to be a humble disciple. 
of Jesus. Well, and here's, here's the humbling lesson, is that the disciples were learning that the kingdom of God is larger than their experience of it. And, and I, you know, Eric, for both of us and for our listeners who, you know, we love theology, we love doctrine, we have core beliefs, we have things that we feel really strongly about. And I think the disciples, you know, are learning the same thing, but they were saying he's not in our group. Mm-hmm. Like, so our group is better than his group. So you can think about denominations, you can think about churches, maybe there's a, there's a church across town that's, that th- does things a little differently than you do things, you know, the way you do things, maybe the way they do worship a little differently, or they do teaching a little differently, or maybe you grew up in a church that, that teaches verse by verse through the Bible, and, and there are not, there's another church that teaches a little bit more topically. And so I think it's easy to get this attitude like the disciples got that, Wait, hold on. God only works in our type of church. God only works in our mm. group. And we can get this sort of this judgmental attitude. And Jesus is basically saying the kingdom of God is larger than your experience of it. I'm, you know, God can work through anyone. God can, God can, God can do miracles through anyone that he wants to. It, it, in fact, this, this, for, Everything we, from everything we understand from the text, he's casting out demons using the name of Jesus. He's actually not doing anything wrong. The only thing he's doing different is he's successful at it, apparently. <laughs> and the disciples in the previous story weren't successful at it. But that doesn't mean he's wrong. Just because he wasn't in their inner circle, the disciples' inner circle, he still, this exorcist was still using the name of Jesus for it. Now, again, we're not saying that that means that doctrine doesn't matter, that your core beliefs don't matter. Of course they matter. But I think Jesus is teaching this broader lesson, and, and that is that the kingdom of God is, is not, is not we're, it's not our job to be the police mm-hmm. of everybody's ministry. Mm-hmm. It's our job to do ministry as faithfully as we can and to trust that, that God is in charge of just the overall movement of the kingdom of God advancing around the world throughout the ages. Yeah. And just real quick, I do think that we should um, be clear that there are major doctrines. There are things to die for, Um, you know, like the sufficiency of scripture, like the Trinity, like Jesus being God, like he's coming back one day that, that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Um, and not by any works, you know. There are there are doctrines that we should fight and and die for, um, and and people who don't believe the major doctrines, um, if if it, it be in our power or if, if put in front of us, there should be a challenge to that. There should be some confrontation, but. There are levels of these, you know, then, you know, it moves from die for to divide for. And that's why we have the different denominations of Christianity around the world, which is is something that I, I wish more Christians understood and, and more of the world understood. Why are we so separated and divided on so many issues? Well, some it's because of important truths, but some of them are things that maybe we do need to you know, humble ourselves on. But there are divide for issues, you know, that you can't necessarily do ministry with another person who calls himself a Christian because maybe it's not heresy, but it's error. I think there's a difference between heresy and error. You know, heresy is damning. Uh, Heresy, uh, not believing the right things about 
about some of these things can actually, you know, end up in not having salvation and sending a person to hell. But then there's error where it's like, okay, you have the major doctrines and you understand, but you've taken some liberties and interpretations in other areas, and that's that's error, and, and, and God will deal with that, and hopefully God will, will humble a person or, you know, one day when we go to meet him, certainly correct us in that area. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a difference between heresy and error, and we shouldn't get those confused and call people heretics that are in error, um, um, but there is certainly are things to pay attention to. And this exorcist was neither one, apparently, because again, all the text says is he's casting out demons in your name, Jesus. He's just not part of our group. So there's not even an indication that he's clearly not a heretic, but he's not even necessarily in, in error. He's just doing ministry in Jesus's name, but he's not part of the inner circle of the disciples. And so Jesus is like, just let him do it. Don't stop him. And there's one other note I want to make here. It's interesting because it gets back to this idea of greatness. He, notice that Jesus goes from verse 39, he goes from talking about doing miracles, which is, which is what I think the disciples were still thinking about greatness. And they're thinking that greatness is do, being able to do miracles, which they couldn't do in the previous story. He's, Jesus is shifting from going from doing miracles to in verse 41, talking about giving a cup of water to somebody. Remember that the kid is still sitting there, is still in his arms, in Jesus's arms. So he's still trying to shift the focus from what, what the disciples are trying to talk about, greatness. Who's going to be great? Who's going to be great? Why can he do miracles, right? So just keep this in mind that the disciples are still thinking about greatness in human terms, doing these, these showy things, doing miracles. And Jesus is trying to bring them back to his, what he's trying to teach them. He, he's bringing them back to humility. He's bringing them back to, what about giving a cup of water to somebody? That's what he's shifting back to. And then, and then he goes in verse 42, he says, if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. Now, now again, I want I want people to put themselves here in this in this place that because all of the scripture is one story that Mark is telling. It's all, the reason we're including this here. I know there's a lot of content we're covering today, but the reason we're including this is because it, this is all still one conversation. It's all still flowing. So who is he talking about when he says little ones? And I, I want to read what Pillar New Testament Commentary has to say about it. Here's what they say. It's really interesting. Because I, Eric, I always thought that he's talking about children, because he's got this child here still. But the New Testament, Pillar New Testament commentary says that the placement of the saying here applies its truth to the independent exorcist from verse 38, who was put down by John. So it becomes an admonition not to discount the faith of another because he or she is not affiliated with an official Christian mm. circle. So the commentator is saying, that, and this is really fascinating, it actually makes sense when you read it all in context, Jesus is, is basically saying, hey, John, you're trying to put down this independent exorcist because he's not part of your group, but if you cause one of these little ones, if you cause that guy who's outside of your group, he's outside of the inner circle, if you cause that guy who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into a sea with a large millstone, millstone hung around your neck. So... When you think about it in those terms, man, it's even more powerful that Jesus is 
is really calling his disciples to humble themselves, to quit thinking so highly of themselves. Yeah, if if we read on in that text, uh, I know we got a lot of verses to make it through, but I've got something to say about this next portion of Scripture, um, because why does he say it's better uh, for them to be thrown in the sea uh, with a large millstone hung around their neck? Because he goes on to say something, there, because there's something even more scary than that. Um, and he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown to hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. And so here's this, um, Jesus brings up something pretty scary, uh, hell. And, And in fact, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. He even talked about it more than heaven. And, and what does hell do for, for us, like bringing up the topic of it? Well, I think to pull the thread of, of humility through this, when I think about hell, it, it instills the fear of God in me. Um, you know, so it should cause me to think about how I view myself and how I teach and lead others, how I treat other people. Um, and, and so basically, it's interesting that they, they're fighting about who's the greatest in the kingdom, and, and they're fighting about maybe the guy that's not in their group. And, and, and I really think what Jesus is getting to here is don't worry about that stuff. Worry about yourself. How about you, you take the log out of your eye <laughs> instead of worrying about the speck that is in your brother's eye? Maybe it's error. Maybe it's weird interpretation. Maybe it's you know, misuse of gifting, or, or, or maybe it's just that you don't like that person. Jesus is basically saying here, again, instead of worrying about, you know, some differences that you have um, and, and, and then mistreating or being prideful in your interactions with others, why don't you worry about yourself? Why don't you uh, try to look at your own sin and, and, and your imperfection. Again, I think Jesus is instilling this, this fear of the Lord in them to cause them, okay, maybe we don't have it all figured out. Uh, and maybe what Jesus desires is not that we fight over, over all this, the minor doctrinal issues and really seek to be humble, seek our own holiness. We can't control everyone else, but we can certainly um, have an impact on how we live our own lives, whether we sin or not, you know, whether we uh, deal with uh, the issues that we have before God. And, and we, it's a humbling thing that Jesus is asking them to do here, um, to cut off your um, hand or pluck out your eye or your foot. I mean, it goes back to the context of in, in chapter 8, where he first brought up the cross and he said, you need to take up your cross and follow me, lay down your lives, die to yourselves. And so Jesus, again, it's a humbling thing to think about giving up your own way, seeing your sin, and doing whatever it takes, even doing something humiliating as far as, you know, cutting off your hand or or something like that. It would better, it's better to be humiliated and humble rather than to go to hell in your pride.
by not acknowledging your own sin. And so Jesus ends this whole section with these, these words, these last two verses, 49 and 50. He says, for everyone will be tested with fire. And, you know, in the context then of all of this, remember, he's, they're judging this exorcist. They're saying he's not a part of our group. You should stop him. Jesus says, I'm not going to stop him. Humble yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, the kingdom of God's bigger than you think. And and really, I think that's he, the context of this of that whole. It may this this statement he makes makes more sense when you think about it in terms of how they're trying to judge this exorcist. He says everyone's going to be tested with fire. We're all going to be tested. He is. You are. Everyone's going to be tested with fire. And then he says salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? And then he just, he focuses back on them. He's not thinking about the exorcist anymore. He says, you must have the qualities of salt among yourselves, and you must live in peace with each other. So it's like he's bringing this whole conversation from all the way back in verse 30, back full circle. He says, I've been trying to teach you guys about humbling yourselves and not thinking so highly of yourselves, because that's what greatness means in the kingdom of heaven. And I, and if you know, if you, humility is the seasoning, right? Think about salt as a seed. There are a lot of different ingredients to make for true authentic followers of Jesus. We could talk about a million other ingredients, but Jesus is king in on humility. And it really is that, that ingredient that makes everything that we do and stand for in the Christian faith more palatable for those around us. And it, it's a lesson to all of us as Christians is to stay salty, to, to, to live in peace with each other, to to let let our conversations be seasoned with grace, to extend maybe to extend more grace in humility, to extend more grace to people who aren't a part of our circle, because humility is is central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This one definitely has spoken to me as we've uh, walked through these scriptures and and you know studied this. Definitely, I have always been a guy who fights a lot of battles and stands for what I believe in. I have a lot of convictions and, you know, sometimes a a mouth that wants to have a mind of its own. <laughs> and, and this really challenged me, you know, because if I want to be a true, authentic follower of Jesus, I've got to bring in all the qualities, not just some, right? Jesus fought for things. He fought for truth and he stood and he was bold and he fought against the religious Pharisees that were in heresy and error. And so that's not always wrong to do, but we've got to mix it all together with also the gentleness and the meekness and the patience, the kindness of Jesus, you know, in my own life. Like, I think I've exemplified some of the qualities of Christ over others, thinking that those were weak or or less than or something. But as I've been growing and God's been humbling me, I think that this is this is definitely one to to mix in there to be <laughs> to be more uh, a, a tastier, more palatable person to people, so as to to reach more people, to have the fullness of Christ in us. And and in order to have the fullness of Christ in us, yes, we must have boldness and truth, but we also must have love and humility. And I think to wrap it up, 
you know, thinking about all of this, um, it just reminds me of a verse where Jesus says something challenging again in, in Matthew 23, 12. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, that's a, that's a scary thing to think about if we get it wrong, if we get the kingdom backwards, if we think we need to um, place ourselves in, in the highest level of importance or uh, to have the highest rank and to have servants, you know, all these things that Jesus have talked about. He says it's backwards. When you humble yourself, you're going to be the greatest. That's really what he's talking about. And ultimately, again, he's talking about himself. He is the example of greatness. Why? Because he was the one who humbled himself, came down to earth. God in heaven comes to earth, becomes a lowly man. The Bible says nothing even to to look at. Um, And he came as a servant. He was rejected, despised, beaten, whipped, and taken to the cross, crucified, humiliated. That's the humiliation of Christ. But then the Bible says he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And so you want to be a, a Christian? We don't have to look any farther than the one whom we follow. His name's Jesus Christ.